Oh, good morning. Thank you for being in worship uh, today. And if you're in our overflow room, thank you for being here as well as for those of you who are watching online right now. Several years ago, I had the chance to read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you may have read that book or you're familiar uh, with the book. Uh, in this book, Gladwell uh, explores the lives of extremely successful people and gives a peek behind the curtain of their lives to discover the why uh, behind their success. Two of the case studies in his book are the Beatles, uh, arguably the most successful musical group of the last century, and Bill Gates, uh, the very successful, extremely wealthy founder of Microsoft. And what Gladwell does in the book is to basically dispel the myth that those who are extremely successful are so simply because they are the most talented or they are the most intelligent. Uh, that the Beatles, he says, it's not that they were so successful just because they were the most talented musical group around. Or Bill Gates did not found Microsoft just because he was the smartest guy in the country. What he argues in the book is that while intelligence and talent are important, that aptitude actually ranks third when it comes to the factors behind success. The first reason for success is what he calls just luck. You're born in the right place at the right time, and you're given that golden opportunity. Uh, for example, the Beatles formed right as this booming nightclub scene was happening in Hamburg, Germany. And from 1960 to 1962, they were able to go and to perform together in these nightclubs night after night after night. Now, had they formed their group just a couple of years earlier, they would not have had the chance to do this. But because they formed this group right as this was happening, and they got this opportunity. When they returned to London in 1962, they had basically perfected their sound as a music group. Bill Gates, as a high schooler, uh, through a connection, had access to a computer lab at the University of Washington. And in a time when most high school students never got to use a computer, he had virtually unfettered access to the computer lab there, and he would take the bus after school every day to the University of Washington so that he could work in their computer lab so that years later when he dropped out of Harvard, he was able to found Microsoft based on the knowledge that he attained through that experience. And so the first reason that, that Gladwell gives for success is just this thing called luck. The second reason is through hard work or through taking advantage of the opportunities that are presented. And in the book, he argues the 10,000-hour rule, that it takes roughly 10,000 hours of practicing at a certain craft before one is able to perfect it. And so the Beatles, for example, they had this opportunity, but they very easily could have said, that's just too much work. To play every single night is just way too much. We'll play once a week. Or we're going to go back to London, and we're just going to have a more, more relaxed schedule, and we'll play only at the times that we really want to play. Or Bill Gates, for example, as a high school student, could have easily have said, hey, I've got access to this computer lab, but I'm in high school. I don't want to spend my afternoons at the computer lab. I want to hang out with friends, or I want to play a sport. It's hard to imagine Bill Gates playing a sport, but he was in high school. Maybe he would have said, 
just play a sport. But he took advantage of the opportunity that was given to him and so that he was able to then to develop those skills that brought him so much success later. And in the book, Gladwell argues that it is often this steady, faithful, sometimes mundane work that leads to success. Now, here's why I tell you all of that. Today, we are continuing our series uh, on the life of David. And today, we will see what is undoubtedly the most famous event in his life when David battles this giant named Goliath. And even if you're brand new to church, you know that reference. You likely know the story of David versus Goliath. It is a phrase that we see often in our culture. When some underdog wins the big game against some larger, stronger rival, what do we say? What do the headlines read? David beats Goliath. Underdog claims victory. And often we look at a situation like that and we will call it a miracle that this underdog team won or that this individual who we never thought would succeed, succeeds. And we read the story of David defeating Goliath and we say that there on the battlefield that day, little David miraculously defeated Goliath. However, when you read the story, you find that it wasn't a miracle at all. That David, because of some things that he did in his life, the day that he stepped onto that battlefield, he was perfectly prepared to defeat a giant named Goliath. If you've got a Bible with you, we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. Uh, If you're having trouble finding it, go to the Old Testament, go past Judges and a little book called Ruth, and you will hit 1 Samuel Turn to chapter 17. And just to set this up, several weeks ago we saw where David was anointed king by a man named Samuel because God had rejected Saul, his predecessor. Essentially, God rejected Saul because Saul had turned away from the Lord. And so God then chose this young man named David to serve as the next king. After his coronation ceremony, we would have expected that David would have gone to the castle and said, get off the throne, Saul, it's my turn. This is where I'm supposed to sit. And if Saul said no, he would have gone and he would have formed a shadow government and raised an army to fight against Saul until he could have reigned in his rightful place as king. But David did neither of those things. David, after he was anointed king, went right back to the field to keep the sheep, to the very same thing he had been doing the day before because that's what God had called him to do at that moment in his life. So that sets us up for chapter 17. A couple of things to keep in mind uh, before we get into the text. One is, if you were here last week, we looked at the end of chapter 16, and I told you last week, that event, although it comes before chapter 17, actually happens after what we're going to read about today. Sometimes ancient writers would put things in thematic order rather than chronological order. That's the first thing. The second thing to keep in mind is that today's passage is very long. uh, And because it is so long, we will not read every single verse. Um, But what we will do is we will look at the various scenes in chapter 17. If this story was a movie, uh, it would be divided into five scenes. And we will read verses from every scene. 
So here we go. The first scene that we see is the battlefield. This battlefield was at a place called Soka, uh, which is in Israel. And at that time, it was located between where the Philistines ruled, which was to the west, and the area that was under the control of Israel to the east. And there in Soka, there was this valley. And on the eastern hill of that valley stood the army of Israel. And on the western hill of that valley stood the army of the Philistines. And there was a valley between these two opposing forces. And down in the valley was the hero of the Philistine army, a giant of a man named Goliath, who according to the Bible stood over nine feet tall and was considered to be this mighty warrior with a trail of bloodied bodies behind him. In this first scene, the spotlight is on Goliath, standing there in the valley, shouting out insults to the army of Israel. So here's what we read, verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Or are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will be your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, we will become, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, while it's not exactly clear from this passage, there is evidence that this is the way the Philistine army often fought that they would go into battle and they would send out their best soldier and they would challenge the opposing army to send out their best soldier. Let these two soldiers fight. Whoever wins, wins the battle. The other army has to serve the victorious army. However, there is also evidence that the Philistines would make this challenge, then they would not follow the rules if their soldier lost. Even in this passage that we will read today, there's evidence that these guys would not follow the ground rules that they set out. And again, while it's not clear, it seems that this kind of fighting was brand new to the army of Israel. That they approached this battle, and they saw this soldier, and they were intimidated by everything that he said. And while going into any battle, I'm sure, is very scary, going into battle against this massive warrior was not what any of them wanted to do. And so the text tells us they stood on the hill, and they were dismayed, and they were terrified. Then the next scene is David at home. Uh, the scene then shifts from this battlefield in Soka back east to Bethlehem, the hometown of David. Uh, we learn that David's older brothers are in the army. They're off at the battle. They're in Soka, and David is at home. Not because he was scared or lazy or just didn't want to fight. He was at home because he was too young. He did not meet the minimum age requirements to join the army. And so he was home tending sheep. And even though he had been anointed king, he was still faithfully serving his father 
watching the sheep. Then here's what happens next. Verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. Now, again, although David had been anointed king, he did not view the job of delivering food to his brothers as somehow beneath him. His father said, I want you to take bread and I want you to take cheese to your brothers who are serving in the army at the battle. Basically, David, I want you to be the pizza delivery guy. Take bread and cheese and deliver it to your brothers who are at the battle. Not exactly the job we would think a future king would be called upon to do. And yet David here obeyed his father and did exactly what his father asked him to do. Which, because of his willingness to perform this seemingly mundane task, it put him in a place where God would then give to David the biggest opportunity of his life. Which leads us to scene three, which is David and King Saul. In this scene, David gets to the battle, finds the army, and he finds his brothers. As he greets his brothers, he looks down into the valley, and he sees there this giant of a man, a Philistine super soldier, standing there yelling obscenities at the army of Israel. Now the men who were in the army, they had heard for days and days Goliath shouting out all of these insults, but this was brand new for David. And so David was shocked and David was furious. And he asked the soldiers around him, what will King Saul do? For the man who goes down into the valley and shuts up that loud mouth jerk. They told him, well, King Saul has promised great wealth to anyone who will defeat Goliath. As well, he's promised the hand of his daughter in marriage. As well, the man who defeats Goliath, his family, will be exempt from all future taxes. However... No one has taken up the king on this offer because, you know, look, he's huge. And to go down there and fight Goliath is basically a death sentence. So no one has volunteered for this job. But David was so enraged at what Goliath had said that he insists that he will be the one to go and fight this Philistine soldier. Word of this finally makes its way back to King Saul. Saul has David brought to him, and here's what we read. Verse 32. David says to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul said, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him? You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. 
But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came out and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So David here at the beginning of the conversation hears from Saul the exact same thing he had heard from his brothers earlier. In fact, the same thing he had heard earlier when Samuel came to anoint him as king. You are just too young. You're not qualified. You're just a kid. You don't have the skills to beat this man who has been a warrior from his youth. However, David recognized something very important here. That God had been preparing David for years for this very moment. It was no accident that God had placed David in a position of tending sheep in his life. David remembers and recounts that he had become very good at fighting off wild animals. That when a lion or a bear would come and steal a sheep, that he would fight that lion and fight the bear. And while sometimes, yes, he had to grab a lion or a bear by the hair and fight it in hand-to-hand combat, I'm sure he much preferred using the slingshot to scare it off before it ever attacked a sheep. And during that time, David had become an expert marksman with a slingshot. And so he says to Saul, I'm ready. I am ready for this day. The argument of David convinces Saul, kind of, (laughs) sort of. Saul's response was, well, go, and the Lord be with you, which was basically the equivalent of saying, well, go, and good luck with all that. This guy's huge. And Saul says, well, at least let me give you my armor. And so his helmet and his shield and his sword, he says, here, David, take these items with you. But David tries them on, and they are too big. They are too cumbersome. David's not accustomed to wearing armor, especially armor that doesn't fit him. And so David takes it off and says, I don't need any of that. And he goes into the valley, and he goes to a stream, And he finds there five smooth stones that he can use against Goliath. He puts these stones into a pouch and he starts marching towards Goliath. And he starts marching towards what everyone assumes will be his certain death. Which leads us to the fourth scene, which is the showdown. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. And I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. So Goliath here, understand this, was big time offended 
because David had come out there. Once David got close to him and he saw that David was just a boy, or as the Bible describes him, really just a pretty boy, glowing with health and handsome. Once Goliath saw that, he was angry and offended. And he cursed David, not because David was coming out to attack him. He cursed David because David was not a worthy opponent. Goliath looked and he saw David. And from his view, to beat David was not a victory at all. It was nothing that Goliath would get to brag about defeating this little kid in front of him. It's like if I challenge Michael Jordan to a game of one-on-one in basketball. Uh, Michael Jordan, if he took on that challenge, would have nothing to brag about if he beat me. I'm five foot ten on a good day, and to put it mildly, I don't have game at all. If Michael Jordan beat me, would he go around bragging about that? Of course not. That's how Goliath viewed this battle. What pride was there, really, in defeating this young kid? And so Goliath begins to curse David over and over, trying to scare David enough that he would run off and Goliath wouldn't have to fight this kid. And the Israelites would send out a more worthy opponent, someone bigger and someone stronger to fight him. But David wasn't giving up that easy. This booming, scary voice of Goliath would not deter David in his mission. Look at verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. So this was not the type of slingshot that we envision today, a child's toy with with, uh, two sticks and some sort of rubber material in the middle that creates the tension that slings the stone. Uh, This was a slingshot that was basically a leather string with a pouch that would be twirled around. It looks something like this. And very talented slingers in that day could project a rock a couple of hundred yards with incredible accuracy. And David, after all of those years of practicing, had become a very talented slinger. He put five stones in his pouch, but he only needed one. First shot, boom, he hits the bullseye. Or more specifically, he hits the giant's forehead. Right in the middle, sinks the rock into Goliath's forehead, and Goliath falls straight down to the ground. David then goes over to the body of Goliath lying there, pulls Goliath's sword from its sheath, cuts off the head of Goliath. And although the Bible doesn't say this, I imagine his next move was to reach over and pick up that giant head by the hair and hold it high in the air and turn around to the army of Israel and smile as a victorious roar came out over that valley when the Israelites saw that giant, this giant Goliath had been defeated. Which leads to our fifth and final scene. Scene five, the chase. Look at verse 51. 
When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. And then after that, David then takes the head to Saul. Uh, If this were a movie, this would be the point that we would see the credits begin to roll and David would ride off into the sunset as the conquering hero. And although this would make a really great movie... In reality, this was just the second episode in a long television series about the life of a man named David. And this episode was essentially his coming out party. And there would be lots of days to follow. And in some of those days, David would make really poor, really uh, uh, bad decisions regarding his life and affecting those around him. However... David here today made really good decisions. At a young age, he was wise beyond his years. And there were three things in particular he did that were key to him winning that battle against Goliath that day. Uh, Here's the first thing, how to beat your giants. Number one, stay faithful in the small task. This is key to David's victory, maybe the key. We do not know exactly how much time elapsed between the point that David was coronated and the time that he went and fought Goliath. It it could have been days, it could have been weeks, it could have been months. We just really don't know. Here's what we know. After David was anointed king, he was faithful in what God called him to do, and he went right back to the field to tend sheep. Now, here's what that means. It could have been very much that during that time, God had some last-minute preparation for David. It could have been that in those days or weeks or months that God wanted David to perfect his skills with the slingshot. That he had just a few more tasks for David to do before the big opportunity came. Imagine if David said after he was anointed king, well, that's it. I'm not going back to the field. I'm king now. Now, look, 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 I've got this big thing coming for me. Why would I go and serve in the field? I'm king. I need to stay here at home and have people serve me. I need to go set up a a shadow government somewhere and have people serve me. I'm not going and serving in the field. If that had been his attitude, David would have forfeited this great victory that we read about because he refused to be faithful in the small things. Years ago, I was helping lead a student conference, and right before the conference began, all the leaders gathered together, the guy who was the speaker and the musicians and all the volunteers, all the adults who were helping out, and we gathered to pray for the conference, and as different individuals went around and prayed, one of the men there, an older guy, prayed something like this, Lord, help these students see that they don't just wake up one day and become the person they want to be, but rather they have to be faithful now in what you've called them to do to become that person later. So often that's what we want. We want to just wake up one day and become the person that we ultimately want to be. or We want to wake up one day and have the life that we've dreamed of. And if the dream is, well, I want to get married... 
If the dream is I want to have a, a good family, I want to lead a productive life, I want to have a good job, then you have to understand that that just doesn't happen. You don't just wake up one day and that's your life. The decisions that you're making now in the small things determine what your future picture will look like. And faithfulness now in school or in your starter job or in your dating life, faithfulness now in the, in the little things will open the door for those bigger opportunities later on. The way we defeat those giants in our life, the first way is by being faithful in the small task. The second way is that we need to learn to listen to the right voices. David that day easily could have allowed the booming voice of Goliath to intimidate him. As Goliath cursed David, and as he shouted obscenity after obscenity, David could have said, you know what? This guy's right. Let's just be honest here. I'm a cricket compared to him. Look at the size of this guy, and I'm just a, I'm just a kid. I'm just a boy. Of course he's right. How can I defeat him? And I'm sure there was some inner voice inside David saying, just run. Run away. And I'm sure David thought, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back up the hill, back up to King Saul, and I'm going to say to King Saul, hey, man, I was ready to go. I was ready to fight Goliath, but on the way down, I, I twisted my ankle, and it's, and it's kind of sore, and I think I've sprained it, and I just need to sit this one out, chief. But, you know, maybe later I can go and fight him if, if no, one, no one else happens to want to. In the meantime, I'm sure David was tempted to come up with some excuse and to run away. But he had spent so many years of his life in that field, not just tending sheep, but in all those hours and days and months and years that he was alone, he spent time with God to the point that he had learned how to listen to the voice of God. And when he learned how to listen to the voice of God in the quiet moments, it allowed him to discern the voice of God on the battlefield when other voices were yelling. And when they seemed to overpower him, he could pick out God's voice, saying, you've got this. I've prepared you for this. In my home team this past week, we studied a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, which reads this way. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And here's the key. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. All day long, we're getting hit with voices. Voices and thoughts in our head that try to defeat us. That say things like, just, just go ahead and indulge in that sin. What does it really matter? Is following God really worth it? Just, just chill out. Just relax. Don't talk about the Lord. No one wants to hear about that. Is, is following God really worth it? You know, this, this is just this is too much. Does God really love you? Think about all that you've done. Think about those sins. How can God love you after you've sinned that much? All those voices, all those thoughts come into our head. Here's what Paul says in, to the church at Corinth. Take those thoughts captive. And make them obedient to Christ. Meaning, you don't nurture them. You don't dwell on them. You say, as a child of the king, that is a lie. 
And I'm not going to give in to that lie. And I'm not going to allow that to become part of my DNA and part of my belief system. The only way you can do that when those loud voices come, the only way you can discern what is true and what is not is by in the quiet moment spending time with God. So when the lies are being fed to you, you can recognize them for what they are. And you can say, no, no, no. I'm capturing that, I'm imprisoning that, making it obedient to Christ, and I'm listening to the right voice, the voice of God. So stay faithful in the small things, listen to the right voices, and then finally, here's the last thing, be willing to fight. That day, 3,000 years ago, in a place called Soka, in a valley called Eli, there were soldiers standing on that hill who very well could have gone into battle. The soldiers of Israel, some of them David's brothers, they were content to stay on the hill and let someone else go into the battle. And David's brothers especially, not only did they not go into the battle themselves, but they criticized David for his willingness to go. The easiest thing in the world is to sit back and do nothing and just criticize those who are engaging in the battle. The hard thing is to actually go into the fight and to do something big for God. I know that today is Halloween. This is the day that children everywhere uh, celebrate as the night that candy is freely giving simply for dressing up and going and repeating an empty threat to people whose door you have knocked on. Um, But for those of us who follow Christ, Uh, Today is about much more than just going and knocking on doors and getting a sugar high. Uh, Today is what is known as All Saints Day or Reformation Day. And today is the day that we remember that a stubborn monk named Martin Luther went to the Catholic Church in a town called Wittenberg, Germany. And there he nailed on the door of that church what, what is called his 95 theses or statements uh, to debate or propositions. For Martin Luther, his big problem with the Catholic Church at that point was that they were selling indulgences. Essentially, you could purchase forgiveness of sin. And throughout this document, he argued that salvation is attained through faith alone and not through anything that we do. When he nailed this document to the the door of the church in Wittenberg, two things happened. One, it sparked what is called the Protestant Reformation, what is arguably the greatest event in all of human history. It changed the history of the world. And you and I sit here today because of the Protestant Reformation that began with Martin Luther. The second thing that that happened was Luther, by nailing that document to the church door, he put his own neck on the line. His beliefs were condemned by Pope Leo X, and Luther was called to disavow his writings. And eventually he was ordered to stand trial and to recant his beliefs, being told that if he did not recant, it would cost him his life. Luther stood at the end of that trial and he made an impassioned speech. And at the end of that speech, he concluded it by stating this. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes 
and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He was not put to death. Some friends of his, quote, kidnapped him and took him to safety. And Luther would go on to help shape the Protestant Reformation. Even though easily Luther could have said, I'm not going to get in this battle. I'm going to keep my head down. I will continue to do my job as a monk. I will minister to people, but I will not go up against this giant. I will not speak my mind because I'm scared for my life. Had he done that, that giant would never have been defeated and he would have lived the rest of his life with regret. There comes a time in your life where you have to say, I'm going to fight. I'm moving off of this, this hill. I'm going into the valley and I will fight. It is time for me to engage in the battle. And if God has called me, I will go and fight. And maybe for some of you in here today, that is exactly what the Lord is calling you to do.